Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mike on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Before we start, I want to thank my latest Patreon subscriber, Warren, for his support as well as all my other Patreon subscribers. If you would like to support the podcast financially and gain access to exclusive companion mini-episodes, articles, group Zoom meetings, or two brand new series of interviews, head over to patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium, where you will find six different levels of subscription, the cheapest being the price of a glass of wine once a month. Alternatively, go to justgiving.com, search for a mic on the podium, and make a one-off donation there. Details are in the show notes below. Today, I conduct a conversation with a young Finnish conductor who became principal guest conductor of the BBC Symphony Orchestra in 2019 and in 2020 became chief conductor of the Lati Symphony Orchestra and conducted the last night of the proms. It is a great pleasure to welcome Dalia Stasevska. Dalia, lovely to talk to you today. How are you? Thank you. Uh, I'm very good. Thanks for having me on your podcast. And how has lockdown been for you? I know you're about to be busy, which we'll talk about later on in the podcast, but how's it been? What have you been up to? Uh, Well, listen, the beginning of the lockdown, I think I was as shocked as everybody else. And it took, I think, uh, a month to realize, or maybe even more, that this will be a very long run for everybody. And of course, it was uh, very, very somehow sad and uh, depressing, and uh, we were all worried how how this will go. And somehow to realize that uh, you you can't anymore like really plan plan ahead with concerts and kind of you. I tried at some point. Okay, I will study for April, and then you know everything is cancelled. Then I do it for May, and <laughs> it gets cancelled. <laughs> some point you realize okay hold on a minute <laughs> start to, start to think this thing around and somehow when i got rid of kind of this this shock and uh, and realizing that this is as i said is going to be a long run i i've been actually really enjoying my time so um i've i don't know i don't know when i've last time have been so well slept and <laughs> and relaxed and yeah. somehow living the life that I thought uh, you do on pension. So in a way it was a positive <laughs> realization <laughs> that is very nice. <laughs> and and doing, doing, of course, there was a moment when in Finland we couldn't go out really and be in touch with anybody. So I basically was just sitting at home with my husband and we had a really wonderful time. We were lo- laughing also about it. We have never spent so much time together <laughs> during <laughs> our five years together. So yeah. that has went well and we have been enjoying it. And of course, when the things have been opening more up, so I could start to travel to, to countryside, to our country home. And basically, I've been just reading massive amount of books. Re- um, then... Uh, I love running, so I've been running five to six times a week, about uh, from five to ten kilometers, and preparing myself for for half marathon that I've been dreaming for so yeah. long time. Studying Italian language, also because opera is big for me, a big passion, and uh, then just you know, just living ordi- ordinary life. And uh, I don't know, it, it has been. It has been actually quite quite nice, but I'm also ready to, to go yeah. back to work. <laughs> yes, I, miss, all... I miss, miss music. Yeah, we're, we're all ready for that. Uh, you've been much better than me. I wish I could run for five minutes, let alone five kilometers. Um, and yeah, yeah I, I, I had grand ambitions to get my German better and things like that, but maybe it'll happen in the next couple of months. Um, yeah. I'm going to go right back to the beginning and find out when music first came into your life, uh, when you first started studying an instrument, how it affected you as a child? Well, my story is kind of, I'm I'm first musician in my family. Mm-hmm. And uh, it went like that, that my uh, parents basically just somehow were thinking about that, what kind of, I think arts was always, 
on a front line. That's some, something with arts we have to do. And my both parents are art teachers and painters. Mm. So I think they were kind of juggling around that should, should we continue the same things like they have been doing or something else. And uh, my father was always a big classical music fan. So he basically just decided that me and my brothers, we should start studying classical music. Mm. And uh, uh, we basically entered uh, Tampere Conservatoire. It's a, it's a small city in Finland. And uh, I remember that my father just said that uh, you are going to study violin and this is going to be your profession. <laughs> so <laughs> so this, this was it. And I think I was nine years old. So there was also a little bit of challenging because I started quite late to play the violin. I was oh, already in the I second started grade. At, I started at the age of nine. Um, oh, you do? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I remember, remember, I had a, like a really tough Polish lady as a teacher, like, you know, this kind of really old style. Mm. And she was like very suspicious. And I remember she said to my parents that, mm, I don't know will the is she going to be any good as a musician? Too late, <laughs> too late. <laughs> and then she said that if I'm going to be very, how do you say, practicing a lot, maybe I can be a music teacher, or if I will be very lucky, I can get a position in an orchestra as a second violinist. <laughs> <laughs> this I remember for, for life. And I remember that, my God, I need to practice a lot. And I don't know, for me, it was, I don't remember really those two first three years. I just remember that it was very strict and uh, we were kind of a little bit forced also to practice, mm. but somehow it also, it didn't conflict with my somehow natural mentality that I kind of liked it also, this hard work and I kind of liked the music. But then I think the game changer was when I was around 13 years old, coming to teenage, becoming like a young teenager, when uh, as a curious child that I was always, um, I kind of was bored of listening just the violin music in the library. And it was for us always a daycare also, kind of <laughs> that we hand out in the libraries whole day before we went home. And then I just said to, to the library lady, can you give me to listen something interesting? And uh, she gave me to listen uh, opera and I had no idea that such a thing exists. I didn't know anything about orchestras and it was Madame Butterfly and it kind of changed my, uh, my, I think that I became musician because of that in a way that mm. I, I found a big passion that I loved it so much. I loved the singing, the libretti, the story. It kind of hit this young girl's heart, this dramatic story. And then also the sound of the orchestra. And that basically also set me uh, that I figured out also during that autumn when I listened to Madame Butterfly that I want to play in orchestra. So I started to play in a string ensemble and a couple of years later in a symphony orchestra that was in this conservatory. So basically I knew that I want to do that. And, mm. uh, and I started to play, you know, Beethoven symphonies just uh, taking the score and then putting a recording on and then I, I, tr I played this violin. So it was, it was, yeah, looking back, it was kind of like, yeah, there was something about it, you know, and yes. even I, I even I didn't see, uh, didn't realize or even thought about becoming a conductor for a very long time. I think I was like 21 or 22 when I realized about this chance but there was always this kind of seed already planted in me, the love for orchestra music, for the sound and for the community and the opera. And you stayed at Tampere Conservatory all the way through until after your studies, or did you go and study in Helsinki at all? Yeah, so conservatory is kind of like a little bit like an elementary school for music. Mm. So I, when I, fin when I uh, finished my second degree, or how do you say, after elementary school, we have three classes. It's kind of like middle, middle class education. So I finished that. And when you finish those classes, you can apply to university. And usually mm. you are 17 or 18 years old. So I applied to Sibelius Academy, of course. And then I studied there for three, three years violin. And then I switched to viola on my fourth year. And then uh, I applied first 
during that time also to Stockholm to study with Jorma Panula conducting. Mm-hmm. So I was uh, basically four days in Stockholm studying, uh, conducting, and then I took always this ship, uh, Viking line called uh, to back to Helsinki. And on the weekend, I studied in Sibelius Academy viola lessons I had. So and, and I did it for one and a half years. And mm. then and then after two years, I applied to Sibelius Academy for conducting and basically then it became my my main instrument. Your main thing. Main, main thing, yeah. I have a question for you because you may be, I'm trying to rack my brains to think if I've spoken to another viola player. Um, and I was a second violinist. So between us, we were in the engine room of the orchestra. One vi- first violin colleague of mine once said to me, not long before I stopped playing the violin, uh, to become a conductor said oh you should switch to being a first violin you'd be a much better conductor i argued <laughs> that that was wrong and being a second violinist uh, and also the violas being the same normally in the middle of the orchestra in front of the woodwind and the brass and the parts that you get to play i would call it the engine room and i would i think i'm a better conductor for being in the engine room of the orchestra than being a first violinist what do you think having played the viola well, my story is basically with viola has a little bit uh, different roots why I changed to it. But I in generally just think it doesn't matter which instrument you play in the orchestra. I think it's essential for conductor to be to have played in orchestra. You know, yes. every single instrument has its uh, magnificent role in the whole this community, and you need each one. So I can't I can't say. I, of course, played for three years, uh, first violin, and have been concertmaster, and I played, actually, I got my first job um, in Tapiola Sinfonietta as a first violinist, where I played substituted for one year in first violin, and it was not a problem, but for me, switching to viola, the the thing was that uh, I had always problems with performing solo, so I had problems with, um, um, how do you say, I was so nervous mm. so and I and I, somehow my teachers never could find the way to help me or unfortunately I, I didn't have uh, help when I actually needed it so it became a really tremendous um, like um, how to say a heavy stone for me that I just couldn't bear how to say the, what you needed to, to become a really great violinist mm. the things you had to do you know and all the competitions it was it was always a pain for me because i had to cancel everything in the last moment my just uh, nerves couldn't handle it and at those times nobody said to me that take a half better you know <laughs> it <laughs> my, you know it sometimes it's like psychological helps and how do you do these things so for me going to viola it somehow I didn't need to be anymore in those situations that were expected from kind of being a soloist or, you know, violinist mm. uh, to be on certain level. And so- suddenly I kind of landed in a more chamber music world and an orchestra world. And that suited me just perfectly. Mm. And also I actually noticed that how much I enjoyed viola. So it was for me like a small trip. I just wanted to try it. But then it somehow I fell in love totally with viola and I, I understood that this is my world. And also I, I didn't need to anymore play those solo, solo pieces virtuosic, you know, mm. under extreme stress. So in a way it was really sad, sad, but in the end everything worked out actually fantastically. And I, anyways, like my passion has been always chamber music and orchestra. So I played in a string quartet for 10 years and we have been performing around Finland uh, like professionally so that was actually my anyways my my call so so I I don't regret how it went maybe it was meant like that but it's something that uh, sometimes when I discuss with young people and and you know with elderly people also this is some some little bit of taboo also you know that there's enormous pressure in performing arts and especially when you are with such a delicate instrument like violin where you can hear everything so this is some some discussion also how we can help the young people to overcome this kind of stressful situations mm. and make the best out of it
I've called him the Yoda of conducting, Yorma Panela, because yeah. uh, I spent two weeks with him, uh, intensive course in Russia many, many years ago. Um, what was your time like with Panela? Um, Osmo Vanska, I asked him exactly the same question, and he said, it's amazing that, you know, he, he seems to teach you by not saying anything. Uh, what was it like with, uh, with Yorma in Stockholm? Well, it was a fabulous time, and um, Yorma has somehow, there's a few things about him that I could say. First thing is that he somehow knows how to pick people, you know, and he also knows how to make a great community somehow and great space where you can learn and communicate. Mm. And also his personality, because he's so interested in everything and he's so open-minded. Mm. Though, of course, there are some, some things about him also that one could say. But, yeah, yeah, but, yeah. But, but, you know, but you know, the general attitude is that he's extremely curious as a person. And I think that this is the seed that he puts in his old students somehow and that I admire about him. That it, There was never boring time with him. And sometimes it almost feels that we spend on everything else than actually the conducting, you know, during yeah. those two years. The, the, we went to museums, to concerts together, had a really long night dinners and discussed about everything. And that was, I think, one of the most important lessons that he actually gave that was outside the actual conducting class. Mm. And the second thing is about him that what I realized actually not that long time ago that what makes him such a magical teacher is that he forces you to be your own teacher. And that's why people are so, ma so many times saying that he doesn't say anything. But this is the thing why he doesn't because he knows that this profession is a lonely business. Mm. There's, there's sometimes really difficult to get any criticism that would be... How to say kind of the the criticism that you get and you really need it's sometimes really difficult to get because mm. your co colleagues are performing at the same time somewhere else mm. you know it, it's a lonely business and you need to adapt and learn alone so much and you can learn only doing this profession also that is very different from instrument playing you can't really prepare except doing it in front so in a way he understood that and that's why he forces the students directly to start to be your own teacher and that's i think the the greatness about him and yeah. he always says that if you start to to drown he will he will throw <laughs> throw the rope and help you out you know but yeah. you but you need you need to first yourself try to to, to kind of swim and and that's his brilliance somehow and that's why I think not single his student is alike you know and mm. and also yeah yeah well that, they have some similarities and I, I know you know bending your knees um, moving too much around the podium things like that I think I can spot a panel of student who somebody studied with him for a, a fair amount of time pretty easily because of the how he do, talks about legs and uh, and knees. Um, what you said about teaching yourself is so true. Um, looking back at earlier episodes, Daniel Harding didn't ha have any lessons very early on in his career and actually had some lessons much later in them, you know, 20 years into his career, which, as you've just said, most conductors don't do and don't have the possibility to do. You know, very rarely does anybody constructively criticize you, give you good advice. Um, you have to be able to do it on your own you know, and you have to be able to sort of teach yourself and I think you're right I think he gives you the tools and in that community of other students and him that you you learn and you uh, absorb things you then went on to study with one of the other characters of Finnish music uh, I read <laughs> at, the, at the Sibelius Academy Leif Segerstam so what was his method like compared to Jorma's? <laughs> well there's there's many similarities of course what you actually said about not bending knees and being mm. clear. And I think uh, this is uh, that also Leif always said, kind of like ABC tools needs to be there mm. because some things about musicality or, you know, interpretations, you can't anymore, you can't really teach those things and you shouldn't because this is what means to be conductor, to show the ideas, you know. But I think what with Leif was that uh, he's such a free soul in an imaginary world 
that you somehow realize that what an enormous playground music is <laughs> yeah, and, yeah. Uh, and somehow what possibilities there are and how wild you can go and and with Leif I have to tell that he he for example he's like bigger than life figure both physically <laughs> and, <laughs> and uh, in in conducting he likes big things and it suited me really well because because he's one of the mottos that he is that you need to have this kind of primal feeling in you when you start to conduct music. And he talk, told me many times in the, my first lessons that go to the forest and just shout as loud as you can. Mm. And, and it, it was this kind of raw energy that he kind of tried to get out of the, the students and somehow to be fully hypnotized and be in the world of of the music somehow that it's not something that you just conduct and perform but you need to become music somehow and also some few lessons i remember really well for lifetime when we kind of had the reading through some brahms symphonies he just made so ridiculous stories out of it like with animals whatever but it all made sense you know and it was it, it was those moments that, you know, you realize that how fantastic music is and how many possibilities and how universal language it is also, that mm. it can touch anybody in so many ways and you could create worlds. It touches re different worlds and, and people. And uh, yeah, so kind of like uh, Leif set, set free in a mm. way. Well, that, that doesn't surprise me. Um, I was lucky enough to play for him on a couple of occasions when I was in the City Birmingham Symphony Orchestra. And um, before he came, somebody passed around a sheet that they'd got off the internet of famous Leif Sagerstam quotes in rehearsals using that incredible imagination. Um, and I can't remember any of them. And I'm sure you can probably find them on the internet now. Uh, but yeah, his language and the way he speaks in rehearsals, he, he will suddenly dart off in a direction to capture your imagination. But then you talking about him shouting, there's, I'm sure you've seen this wonderful clip of him conducting somewhere in Spain doing Scheherazade, where he's screaming his head off in the last movement and getting the orchestra to sort of imitate a, a Persian market. Um, and yeah, it doesn't surprise me that he told you to go into a forest and shout. Uh, <laughs> um, I, love, I love teachers who have who think, come at it from a completely new angle. Yeah, I kind of like set your energy free. And I must admit that sometimes in some pieces where it's like extremely loud, I can sometimes like also in a way, I don't say that I'm shouting, but in a way I try to always remember and ground myself to this kind of primal power. And it, it kind of helps a lot, you know, when you go together with it, that it's not just, uh, it's, it's such a physical also profession. Yes, oh, yeah. and it, he is totally right about it. But of course, he <laughs> he brings everything to the next level. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and, and actually, thinking back, you know, you know, he, again, like Yorma, he has a very clear technique. But and as you say, he's he's a very large man. But what you do get from him, that even with a small with a small beat, you get a feeling of power when he wants it. Something in, the, in his gestures that you feel that, that yeah, he's an he's got immense power, and that's how you should play. Yeah, and actually, to be honest, I I I think no matter what you think about Leif, but uh, it's uh, I must admit that his technique is one of the best I've ever seen. Mm. Anyone, you know, he can do with those magic hands anything he wants, and it, they are honestly unbelievable. After your studies, um, the next big thing, I think, for you would be the two years you spent at the Orchestra de Paris assistant to Pava Yervi. Now, first of all, I need to ask, because uh, were you assistant to Pava Yervi or were you assistant to the orchestra? Because it's a very big difference. Uh, I think I was both, actually. <laughs> uh, but mostly I was to the orchestra. But yeah. uh, but those weeks that I assisted in the end, they were only actually Pava's weeks. I assisted Simon Rattle 
couple of times also, and uh, Herbert Blumstedt, who else was there? I was present also in other, but it was more like little, little help, not in an assisting way that I, I had a relationship with, uh, with Bob, of course, mm. during mm. his week. But yeah, but it was, it kind of, I would say it was both, but employee was Orchestre de Paris. <laughs> yes. And did that give you lots of time to talk to the orchestra? Um, I've often said with assistant jobs that part of the thing that you get out of it is being able to talk to the orchestra about, you know, playing in orchestras. I know you'd played in, in orchestras already, but how much contact did you have with the players? Yeah, I think it was very natural for me because uh, because as I said, you said also I mentioned, you know, I have a like a long history in playing in the orchestra and I played also in Helsinki Philharmonics for many years in viola section. So for me, like communicating with orchestra musicians, it, it's like the most natural thing. And I, I got a really many good friends from Orchestra de Paris. And uh, but I think the most maybe exciting thing was was still in the end that I could study so much of repertoire without kind of having stress to do it myself wow. and having all the time wonderful guidance and discussing discussions with um, with Paavo Järvi hmm. and he became a very important figure in my life and we were very very good friends. I know that Holly Matheson rates him very highly as a teacher I mean he wasn't necessarily teaching you but he was obviously speaking to you uh, and giving you advice and guidance. Um, and you found that helpful along with watching Rattle, Blomstedt and others? Yes, extremely, mm. extremely. Because the thing is what I said also before that conducting, you can't, you can study it, but actually the learning happens in the concert hall, you know, mm. and with conducting, that's why I think it's so important to observe the way you communicate with the orchestra and what kind of results you get. And then especially the rehearsing process is extremely fascinating and, and interesting. And also how you balance the power. What do you say in which days? What goes also behind um, after the rehearsal ends, you know, uh, relationships and uh, friendships and so on. So that is very interesting world and you don't learn it uh, in school and you don't learn also the speed that the conductor needs to to have in learning repertoire and also how do you make touring and prepare for those things and what happens. So there's so much of things that you, you, you can learn actually and mm. I'm really grateful for those two years. And I also was assistant to Esopekka and uh, Salonen and Philharmonia Orchestra. And with oh. them, for example, I was one month on Japan, Japan tour. It was so interesting also, you know, just coming out of school and seeing the real world in a way. So <laughs> I, 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 I wish that every single conducting student should do and could experience being assistant. It's, it's really, really important, I think, bridge between being a student and coming to profession. I agree. Um, I mean, there's even things, you know, I'm actually talking to somebody now who you would know this or be able to feel this, but there, there's little things that you, that you, that a conductor can learn. Like there's a moment in every rehearsal. If, if a rehearsal needs a coffee break, there's a moment when you're conducting that you can almost smell it in the room that it's time to have a break because the orchestra attitude is starting to change do you, do you know what I mean you can feel it yeah. you can smell it in the room and I think for a young conductor who's not played in an orchestra like we have that sort of thing is something that is paramount to learn you know we, you could carry on conducting for 10 to 15 to 20 minutes too long before calling that break and upset uh, annoy um, some of the members of the orchestra uh, and it's and it's it's a it's a skill that every conductor needs i mean that's just one of the skills you mentioned so many other ones but yeah they, there there are things that just through sitting and observing you can learn um, exactly and, and i agree that everybody should given the chance if they have a chance to audition for one or apply for a job as an assistant they should do it as a young conductor exactly i would imagine not long after these experiences as assistant conductor you started getting some work guest conducting. How did you find it? How do you find guest conducting? Um, as you said, the loneliness of it, uh, the stress of meeting an orchestra for the first time. Um, how do you find it? 
Yeah, well, during when I became assistant of Orchestre de Paris, I already started to get some concerts, actually. So it, it was very kind of smooth. But I, I find that uh, most kind of surprising thing that I had to find a way to balance somehow is the 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 speed you need to learn new repertoire mm. that it's really ruthless and kind of even uh, even in conducting class um, with Yorma and Segerstam what was brilliant that every week we had a new symphony mm. and I know that some people were back then that why can't we just you know be two weeks in this Brahms symphony and really study it but the point is that I realized later that it was just a tip of the iceberg of the reality and kind of Jorma's, Jorma and Leif were preparing for the speed. But mm. we never really discussed it that, you know, if I would be now conductor teacher, I would do a couple of weeks where you need to learn everything in a way, in a one week. Mm. Because this is also something that, that, that you, need to, you need to learn fast. And uh, I think that those things were really surprising uh, in the in the first years. But but in generally, you know, I've always enjoyed so much conducting and uh, every single concert and every single step towards new step uh, have been really exciting somehow. And um, yeah, so in a way, when I finished my two year position with Orchestra de Paris, somehow I found myself <laughs> in fully booked years mm. then well, and it kind of it kind of went very very well and naturally well that's very good and i'm assuming that it would have been doing one of those i think i read it was in 2018 that you first met the bbc symphony orchestra an orchestra yes. i've conducted quite a lot um i think 20 times or something like that an orchestra wow. i love um an orchestra that um that are, are superb what was that first meeting like? Uh, had you conducted in the UK before that? I know you'd, you've been on tour with the Philharmonia, but had you conducted um, on your own, so to speak? Yeah, I conducted Opera North uh, mm. in a symphony concert, uh, I think maybe a few months before that. And it was a wonderful experience. And I remember I told my agent that I love UK. <laughs> that it felt so good. And uh, I really enjoyed being amongst the colleagues in Opera North. So it was really warm and nice welcome. And then of course, a few months later when I went to BBC, of course, I was a little bit nervous. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> so, so, so was I the first time I worked there. Um. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I, I think I extra prepared well, but then, then, you know, it was a studio concert and uh, I just uh, tried to do my best and, it was somehow, we clicked somehow so well together and I just could feel that they understood exactly what I wanted and they gave back so much of mm. energy and I was like, this is incredible. And sometimes, of course, I heard in the past that uh, British orchestras can be a little bit difficult. So I was like, there's nothing about that, that it was so friendly, so nice. I gave, I got so much back from them and we somehow fully enjoyed our our this uh, two short rehearsals and a concert and i heard later then that also orchestra was really excited and they booked me directly for the second studio concert so and then they changed a, a orchestra so basically of course bbc is a huge orchestra so they i had a one part of the orchestra in the first studio concert and the second part of the people in the second concert mm. that i did and after that then uh, Paul Hughes came to me and said that this is clear that we would like to <laughs> deepen our relationship. That was, of course, came for me out of the blue. But then in the end, of course, uh, it was kind of clear that we clicked in a really nice way that I didn't really experience with other orchestras until then. Mm. Yeah, it's nice, isn't it? I mean, especially when, as you say, I mean, I, obviously, I grew up in the UK and played in the UK, and you heard stories, you know, I played in the CBSO for my entire career. But, uh, you know, you heard stories about other orchestras and what they could be like and what had been said, and, and I'm sure they're overblown and blown out of proportion. But, yeah, I remember going to BBC Symphony Orchestra, one of those orchestras, for the first time, thinking, oh, my God, I could be eaten alive here. 
Um, <laughs> uh, and it turns out that I wasn't, and I've been, as I said, been back many times, and it turns out that you weren't. In fact, that there was a, you know, that you almost, um, uh, I've often talked about it being a first date, and your first date turns out that there was a chemistry there. Um, and, and and they are such a warm orchestra when you work with them regularly. And, and yeah, well done, a principal guest from 2019, wasn't it? You started yeah. as principal guest. Um, which meant that later that year, uh, you made your proms debut. Um, exactly. Uh, doing, what was the programme? Remind me, please. I was doing Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony and then, uh, then uh, Sibelius' uh, Karelia suit and uh, also performed by Solga Beta Weinberg cello concerto. So this was yeah. the programme. And, and how was that um, doing? I've not done a prom concert yet. I'm going to say yet because one day I will. I've decided so one day it'll happen. Um, but how was that, the proms being such a big media hyped event you know, there's a big launch, there's uh, the radio's there, sometimes BBC4, the television are there. Um, how was that? Was it just another concert for you? Or, or did you feel the, the sort of uh, eyes watching because, you know, you'd been announced as principal guest and it's the proms. What was it like? Well, I think it's, uh, of course, you, you understand that it was my first uh, public concert uh, going directly to the proms, <laughs> doing yeah. also there. Of course, there was. Uh, I knew that uh, people came to to watch. But you know, in the end, what's so wonderful for me in, in con when I do conducting, I, I just forget about that thing and I just enjoy the moment. Uh, so, so in a way that didn't. Of course, there was a lot of also this interviewing and the TVs and cameras and whatever and. Uh, of course, realizing how big space is and the people, but I, I found it somehow just uh, somehow really inspiring uh, place mm. to to somehow fully fully just do music and do the best best I can and enjoy the enjoy the moment, you know. So it was a good experience, which means oh, that, yeah. yeah, which means that um, when this episode comes out, dear listener of the podcast, by now, Dahlia will have conducted the last night of the proms, 2020, but we're, I'm talking to her right now on Friday, Ju July the 10th, uh, which means it hasn't happened yet. And I'm not even sure we know what the program is yet. I'm not sure it's been published. So I can ask Dahlia whether she's looking forward to being... I think the second Finn and the second female conductor to ever conduct the last night of the proms. Did that come as a shock? Were you surprised? How, how did it come about? Yeah, it, it was kind of surprise and I, I couldn't believe that, uh, <laughs> that they asked me, but of course I was so honored and, uh, and the answer was of course easy to say yes. Mm. And uh, something that I've been looking so forward of course, now uh, this pandemic has changed the situation. Yes. Uh, but but somehow I don't know. I feel that even that now it's even somehow more meaningful after this long lock time and difficult uh, for challenging times. Somehow it feels so so great, and somehow I feel some such a joy in my heart that I can do again music and especially this concert that so many people proms that so many people love and have been following uh, for years uh, that we can make make it still happen and even under different circumstances the music goes on you know and yes. and and we play and that's the most important thing somehow uh, i don't want you to divulge the program because as i said when this comes out it doesn't matter because everybody will listen to it but yes. you can, you can maybe you can tell me now um, in advance. I have, do you still have to give the traditional conductor speech? You know, I cannot comment because <laughs> <laughs> because because I think we are now in a position where you know we still daily have changing regulations. Yes, I'm sure. Uh, yeah. we, we don't know really what's going to happen, so. So in the future, when people are listening to yeah. this, uh, we will know actually how it all, all comes 
comes out. We have some some bits that are that we know that we want to have, but I think we all need to be flexible yes. in this situation, you know. And the, for me, the most thing is that the music will happen and we will get to play together and uh, something will come out of it, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> you should be a politician. That was a very good answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I look forward to it. I mean, you know, as you said, just yesterday there was a change in regulations on what on uh, some venues and how uh, some organizations can start to work. And I'm sure between now and the last night, things will change on a daily or weekly basis. I mean, as you say, things will be will be different by the time you actually get to do that that concert. Um, another thing that's happened for you during lockdown is in May of uh, May of lockdown year 2020, it was announced that you're going to become the next chief conductor of the Lati Symphony Orchestra. That must be something to really look forward to after all of this is over and you can start with them. Oh, yes. Yes, it has been kind of, you know, second, uh, next to BBC, it has been my like a second light uh, that has um, has made this lockdown <laughs> a little bit, in a way, not so heavy that I, I, I know that uh, I will soon start to work with them and something that I'm looking really much forward and I'm really happy that we could announce it because it, of course, we couldn't announce it for some time because of the all this that happened around us. And uh, it was in generally really unclear what will happen to orchestras, you know. Mm, yeah. I'm really happy that we are going forward with this and something that I'm looking forward to in working uh, for the first time being a chief conductor of an orchestra so it's tremendously exciting and also exciting is that uh, Sinfonia Lahti in a way has been all way long with my career as a musician it first started that I of course listened to their groundbreaking Sibelis recordings that we probably all have music lovers know about and have mm. listened with Osmo Vanska and uh, later on uh, I've conducted them on a couple of occasions, and in a way, it's uh, I'm so, I'm so happy that it's this orchestra and Sibelius has been such a anchor in my repertoire also, and uh, the way orchestra plays and sees uh, works with their community and sees uh, future of classical music and it's some it it resonated really a lot with me. So I'm 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 really really happy to to become uh, especially their chief conductor now because i as i've said on many podcasts i spent two weeks learning with the orma pamela and he basically told all of us that we shouldn't be writing lots of th things in our scores especially using red and blue pencil that i do uh, it was a sort of a slap down by yorma um i'm assuming because you studied with yorma and uh, leif sagerstam that when you come to learn a score that you keep your scores fairly clean, uh, you don't write an awful lot in, and how do you go about learning them? Uh, I know Yorma talks about trying to learn it quickly, um, but what's your process for learning a new score? I think that it's, it's a going on process that, of course, when you are uh, just starting conductor, just to that your eye learns to read a score visually, and pick out the things is it's really difficult you need to you know when you i've studied all my life just reading one one line you know yeah. and suddenly you have so many lines and also organizing your head around it of course like i started with using a lot of colors and just making a big lines and writing in big capitals uh, in red Forte and in piano, <laughs> blue and and I had different colors for for wind instruments and strings, and then somehow during the years, as you said, somehow it became much more or less. But at the same time, uh, what I love is that uh, it's a kind of an ongoing process, you know. And then I love to come back to some scores that I know that I used during my first years of my professional career and I sometimes like think oh this is really sweet you know that I was this was difficult for me then that I needed to mark it and sometimes I find like really interesting like marks that I forgot about some interpretation things so I, I think it's a nice like a diary in mm. a way I agree 
with with Yorma, but I also disagree in a way that it's it's nice to keep track about things and you forget kind of and sometimes I realize some things in the um, in the rehearsals that this is difficult part this needs to be balanced like that and it's nice to have a kind of mark of that for future mm. and sometimes when the score gets too messy I just buy a new one you know <laughs> next to it and copy copy good good things and then just do new markings so it's it's less marking but my markings are mostly like a comments for myself nowadays yeah, it's similar to myself that, you know, I look back at scores and think, why did I mark it like that? But there there might be some gold dust in there. And eventually, yeah, as you say, it gets so messy that I buy a new one. But I do transfer the interesting things across um, uh, because they sort of become your Bible in that piece. Your th- all of the thoughts that you've had over the years of doing it, that it would be silly to discard it. Um, yeah, we take from take bits from one teacher and other bits from other teachers and then form your own opinion. And uh, then also, like, it's, you know, being a musician, you're never, never happy with the thing you do. You kind of always aim to be even better, to be even mm. more clear. And so it's, uh, the score is also like, as I said, it's a, it's a diary of constant practicing in a way. So some, some might be good things that you keep like this kind of ground stones and some you throw away and then you build it all the time, try to build higher and higher and higher, you know. Mm. Uh, I've just thought of one other question. You you can keep this answer as short or as long as you like. I've worked in Finland and I can manage to count to 10, say cheers and thank you in Finnish. Uh, I have very, very basic Spanish to do rehearsals and I can rehearse uh, basically in German. Finns are amazing with languages. Do you speak any other languages when you go and rehearse in other places in Europe, for instance? I know Zachary Aramo, for instance, speaks seven languages, I think, all of them pretty fluently. Um, what, what are you like with your languages? And do you, uh, do you try and rehearse in the language of the place that you're working in? Yes, I try to do that. And mm. language is a little bit like music. It, it kind of, it's, it's important tool in communicate, communication and you know, when you go to Germany, of course, you would love to speak German because you get those small things that you can't really get in English, maybe, and you don't know how the other persons understand and communicate. So I always found like it's it's so inspiring to learn learn new languages and and try to to use them also. So and in Finland, uh, because we are we have already two languages that everybody needs to learn: Finnish and Swedish. Mm. And then English comes in third grade, and then in the sixth grade, we still need to choose between, uh, or we can choose depending on the school, probably between Russian, uh, German, French, I don't know if somewhere is Italian, but this kind of language is, so it's, it's kind of in our great education system that we are kind of, in, uh, how do you say, guided to learn a lot of languages, and it, it doesn't become such a big, like, step to to understand the music and of the language and in a way also the how it's constructed you know mm. so as you learn some languages you understand that they're always the next language is so much more easier to to learn mm. so and of course for me for me too i speak really many languages so yeah well, I, I i wish I, I try um and i i think it speaks very well of your education system that that's how it is you know here in the uk we're pr- basically it's normally French for two years, and then if you're any good at it, you take an exam in it two years after that. So you do four years, but most of the rest of us do two years of French, and then that's it. Yeah, I did German for three years, um, and of course, the minute I finished and took that exam, I forgot the lot. Um, <laughs> uh, and yeah, I, th- I think it, it's a shame that languages uh, aren't taught so so diligently as they are in Finland over here in the UK. It's partly also laziness because English is a language of finance, it's the language of aviation, it's the language of the sea. And so English people are lazy learning languages, I think. Yeah, but like talking purely like in, in, mu- in music world, like for example, for me, it's, it's really difficult to imagine that I could conduct opera if I don't know a little bit of the language. Mm. So mm. that's like, that's essential to all. It's as important as studying the score that you have some clear idea about the, the language and that's why for example Italian has been like uh, for me for a long list that I, I need to learn to speak it 
And I remember last summer when I conducted for the first time uh, Russian uh, opera Onegin by Tchaikovsky. Mm -hmm. And of course, Russian is for me, I speak it fluently. So uh, I, for the first time, kind of like even more clearly realized that this is how it feels, you know, when you understand the language fully. Mm -hmm. And you can uh, you can communicate. You understand why the music is how it is. Uh, and uh, for with German, it's also for me easy. And Italian has been like um, that 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 I haven't studied that much. And it's been like a like a passion. So now I'm hoping that I will get this same kind of feeling, also with that. That it kind of opens up you also the music musical language. Dahlia, it is 10 questions time, and I start with what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I love the sound of nature. That's my like my most favorite sounds of, na of nature and sounds that I hate when somebody's drilling <laughs> our <laughs> wall in the morning when I try to sleep. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Uh, the sounds of nature, I'm assuming, do not include Leif Segerstam shouting in a forest. Well, <laughs> I'm open to all possibilities if they are well explained why. <laughs> <laughs> um, the next one, obviously, we've had a lot of time for you. It's for when you're busy working and you happen to have 24 hours off. Um, if you had 24 hours free, what would you spend it doing? Sleeping. <laughs> Fair enough. Good answer. Um, the next one, you can have more than one. Who would be a favourite conductor of yesteryear? Well, <laughs> what a difficult question. Uh, I would say, like, if I would need to shoot one name, it would be Bernstein. Mm. Definitely. Yeah. And then, then I really love also Mravinsky. Oh, that's a name that's not come up very often. And yeah, I love watching him conduct. Um, yeah, and his recordings are really, truly incredible. And mm. the, just the, the, what he did with that orchestra, it's, it's unbelievable. Over such a long period of time as well. Yeah, yeah. Mm. so those, those two definitely are some that I, I admire hugely. Well, if you thought that question was difficult, what about the next one? Who would be a favourite current conductor? Oh, <laughs> all my dear colleagues are my favorite conductors. <laughs> it's, it's, I, I don't know. It's, it's difficult to, to, to really answer. There's, you know, every single musician is gives something, and there's always something that, I, I don't know. It's difficult to say. Maybe, no, I would say the somebody later that I have been admiring a lot is the new chief conductor of Berlin Philharmonics. Mm, by Kirill Petrenko. Yeah, yeah, mm. definitely. And then, uh, of course, I, uh, I have a um, huge respect to Esa-Pekka Salonen, Paavo Järvi, and, uh, and, and Sakari Oramo, Susanna Malki, you know, you, you just name it. Mm. So many of my Finnish colleague, colleagues I admire them. What is the hardest work you have ever conducted? There hasn't been really one, but there has been one that I never agreed to conduct because it was too difficult. <laughs> oh, God. oh what, what was that? It was by Magnus Lindbergh. I can't remember anymore what the piece was called, but it was his early works. And it was so bloody difficult that I needed just two weeks, I realized, to understand the, all the temporal relationships. And after that, I could start somehow even to study the actual score. And then it was somehow that there were only two rehearsals for that. It's just some kind of chamber, chamber group piece. And there was too little of rehearsals and I had like one week to study or even less. And I, I just put my hands up, say, I can't do it. So in the end, nobody, nobody actually performed it. So I wasn't the only one who was worried <laughs> about it. So I never got to the goal, but that was the only moment. <laughs> what I can say about Magnus Lindbergh is that I conducted the clarinet concerto two or three years ago, and it does take a metronome and a calculator, 
to work out those temporary relationships where time shifts normally by a third or a quarter or a half um, so that you get exactly the right relationship between the two tempos and they shift on a bar line and it's it, this sort of metric calculation of how to do it and yeah if you if you're against a time deadline uh, there is no quick way of learning those you just have to you have to sit down with a calculator and a metronome and work out how to do it yeah and just imagine just a starting conductor and to get this this piece whatever it was i mean it was just a, yeah. <laughs> it was a swamp i saw a swamp <laughs> <laughs> in front of me yeah but but i conducted a few times other pieces by uh, by uh, magnus and even they are much more easier than that piece that basically changed every two bars uh, yeah you need you need a calculator and a and a time to figure out they're usually very logical but still you you need time to to work out them and it it takes time when traveling abroad to conduct what item could you not leave home without uh, my jogging uh, sneakers they are always with me I always try to go and run in the new city where I am so what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor maybe that I could have <laughs> I don't know maybe maybe that uh, I wouldn't facing backwards to the audience that maybe I could have two heads or something. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Is I don't know how to answer this. Sorry. Do you, do you feel, I, I often feel that I enjoy concerts more if there is an audience behind the orchestra in the choir stalls. Yes. So, you know, I don't, I don't think your answer is that bad at all because, you know, you, if you're in a concert hall where there, there are no choir stalls or, you know, so the, you're just conducting an orchestra and there's a blank wall. Often it, you, I do feel a little bit sort of divorced of the audience, if that makes yeah, sense. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a maybe my point that I yeah. kind of, I enjoy when the audience is close to me. And that was what was wonderful about the proms, that they were really, you could, you know, mm. just there, you know, so close. And I find it it's always so inspiring. It inspires me than having this huge gap and then they're somewhere in the darkness. So yeah, maybe that was the kind of idea about what I would change, <laughs> but a little bit impossible. What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Mm, I don't know, there's so many that I'm interested in, but I think I, I will probably be something with uh, with arts but i've been always interested in architecture and spaces and uh, somehow beautiful things I, I love parks i don't know maybe i would be drawing parks in future <laughs> some kind of in other other life but no. i i'm i'm interested in the public spaces and uh, and um, yeah and, and in architecture and garden garden and green things have been always close to to my to my heart so i i used to i don't know maybe it's eight years ago i bought bought a land close to helsinki where i basically repaired from zero a very very old house and using totally traditional and ecological uh, tools and materials and uh, also like a building a new garden in the starting from scratch so i think it goes from back then and of course my parents being painters i somehow been always surrounded by by somehow the idea of beauty you know and searching mm. for beauty things uh, beautiful things around us so i think maybe something like that if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink you know i love cooking and i love food and and uh, but for me you know i've seen the beauty of the home cooking of my grandmother and i've been to like most fancy restaurants and i always come to the to the point that the of course you get satisfaction from most simple tomato salad by my grandmother <laughs> or the amazing artwork that you can get in a fancy restaurant or just uh, going to McDonald's, you know, sometimes you just need a good McDonald's and you know what you get. And that's the only thing that satisfies you in that moment. 
but but in the end for me food always is a social thing somehow and if i would want to have a last meal i would definitely want to be surrounded by somebody that i loved one or a friend or something and share it with yeah. that person so that that would be my answer so it doesn't matter what is on the plate but it matters who that i would share it in a great company with a lot of laughter very good excellent i think you're right i think you know the meals we remember the most are the ones where we were with somebody that we love or in an incredible surroundings with people and having fun and yeah. talking of having fun i wish you toy 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 for the last night of the proms and i hope you have fun and when this is all over i hope to see you soon thank you very much a mic on the podium was devised and produced by michael seal with music by ben dawson Next time, I chat to an English conductor whose career path is rather similar to my own. After spending time as a professional double bass player in London, he has gone on to have an extremely busy and successful conducting career, holding positions as chief conductor or music director in Sweden, Germany and the United States of America. Until then, bye-bye.